Amen. Amen. Hey, this morning we are continuing in our series on citizenship. And so we're going to be in a couple of different places this morning. If you want to begin to turn there, we're going to start in 1 Samuel. We're going to work our way to about the middle of 2 Samuel. And then we're going to end in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. And so if you have three fingers on one good hand, you can be there with us. A number of years ago, when we first moved back to the States, we were evaluating where we're going to live. Are we going to stay in seminary housing or are we going to look to buy a house? And then we looked at our finances and we said, exactly how small can it be and still be called a house? And so we began to look in Fort Worth and, and try and find a house that we can make into a home. And a lot of the things that, that we found that looked like they could be made into a home looked like they could also be a good place to murder someone. And so as we're going down through there, it began to get to the realization that, hey, look, we weren't going to be able to find new, we weren't going to be able to find large, but what we could find is abandoned and in need of love. And so we found one that was abandoned and in need of love, and we, we bid on it, and it worked out for us. And so I remember uh, calling the uh, inspector who was going to go and let me know just how bad and how, how in need of love this abandoned house was, and so he says, listen, I'm going to get there in the morning. You come out kind of early afternoon, and I'll walk you through and let you know the, what the report finds. And I say, man, golly gee, that sounds swell. And so I, I go out there with him, and he, he says, well, it's a house built in the 60s. And I said, yeah, like I see that on the paper. And he said, well, let me just take you over here. And he starts to go into this bedroom. He's like, fire hazard, water hazard. I don't know what that is. It's a hazard. And she's going from room to room, pointing all the various things that are hazardous, all the various things that, in my mind, he's saying were going to kill me or cost me lots of money, which I'm a cheapskate. So that's the same thing. And so he's going down through there, and, and he points at this one wall in our living room. You see, see that wall over there and that, that 15 set of outlets? I said, yeah, man, that's really curious. He said, one of them works. I said, what now? He said, yeah, one of them works. Look, you don't pay me enough to get into the attic, but my suspicion is that one quit working, he put that one in. That one quit working, he put that one in. That one quit working, he put that one in. And right before he moved, they all quit working, and he put that one there on the end, and that's why it's a quad plug. He didn't want to have to put another one in. I said, well, what? That's not, that's not so bad. He said, well, let's go see the electrical panel. And I thought, no, come on now. Let's stop here. This is a real high note. I've got a working outlet in this room. So we go, and he, he goes into the garage, and he opens up the panel, and it's just all these wires feeding down and then a sea of colors of every different wire nut you've ever seen. And I said, that's really curious. I, 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 don't, I, you know, I don't spend a lot of time hanging out looking at electrical panels, admittedly, but in the few that I've hung out with on the weekends, I've never seen that many wire nuts. He says, yeah, what happened essentially was the guy said, I'd really like another outlet there in the living room. And so he ran down and put a little pigtail on, on a breaker and then he ran it back over to the other side I said, really? He said, yeah, this isn't how it should be done. This isn't the right way to do it, but it does work until it burns your house down. That's delightful. Where do I sign? I'd love to buy this place. It sounds so swell. And, and, and so we looked at that and we recognized that there are a number of things that the previous homeowner had done that did work, and some of them did work for a time, but none of them were done right. None of them were done well, and all of them ended up costing a lot of uh, loss of sleep, and a loss of money to make right and to make where I could go to sleep at night without saying, did you hear the wood crackling? I'm pretty sure that's the house burning down. Do you smell smoke? That's nothing that wakes your wife up from a dead sleep other than stirring her and saying, honey, do you smell smoke? 
it, it makes her smoke, and it's just not a good thing to say in the middle of the night. So we recognize that this same principle is seen throughout the history of Israel in First and Second Samuel. That at some point along the path that they looked around at their neighbors and they said, listen, we're distinctly different from our neighbors. We have no one to lead us like they do. Every neighbor that we have has a king. We want a king as well. And so they wanted to be the same as their neighbors. So they go to Samuel and said, we want a king. And Samuel says, you don't want a king? It's a horrible idea. The king is going to tax you. He's going to take your sons and your daughters. He's going to make them work for him. You don't want a king. It's a bad idea. At the end of that, they said, well, this is all great, but we, in fact, do want a king. They said, we want a king over us. We want to be like everyone else. We want him to go out and to fight our battles for us. So they exchanged having the Lord their God as their king, as their sovereign over them for a king they could see, a king that they could have fight their battles physically for them. And so as they go out to find their king, do they look at someone who reminds them of the Lord? Do they look to someone who draws them into his presence? No, what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2 is they found someone who essentially was the tallest and they found someone who was essentially the best looking. 1 Samuel 9 and verse 2 says, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, Saul the handsome. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other of the people. Now listen, Saul is not king for very long. And as a king, he's really this guy who goes out into battle for them and who wins the fight for them. But when we find ourselves moving not very far into 1 Samuel chapter 13, we find that, that once again the Israelites are preparing to go into battle. They're preparing to fight the Philistines. And Samuel has told Saul, I'm going to come, I'm going to uh, extend an offering before the Lord, and after the offering is extended before the Lord, you will be ready to go out and to fight this battle and to fight this, 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 this fight this day. And so he, he is waiting and, 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 and wondering, where in the world is Samuel? And verse 8 of chapter 13 says he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul looks out, he has this army with him, and he's headed into battle, and he begins to notice that after seven days, everybody says, this isn't so great, we're going to go home. They begin to lose their courage, they begin to lose their resolve, and so Saul looks around, he says, I have to do something. So Saul says, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Saul looks around, and essentially he thinks, listen, this is all perfunctory, all this is just for show. All this is just so that God will bless it. It doesn't matter who does it. It doesn't matter how it's done. So if we just get this thing done, God's going to take care of it. Bring me the peace offering. Bring me the burnt offering. Here we go. Let's make this thing happen. Verse 10 says, As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Samuel went out and met him to greet him. And, and, and Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you had not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. He said, listen, this is a lot of trouble for me. You aren't here and, and, and something had to be done and so I forced myself to do it. I willed myself through it and all the while you can see that, that likely in the back of Saul's mind he's expecting to Samuel say, you're right, I'm never on time. I'm never where I'm supposed to be. When I'm supposed to be there, man, thank you so much. Please don't tell the big guy upstairs. 
he'll be so frustrated at me for not being there on time. But instead, that's not at all how Samuel responds. He says in verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. What we go on to read is Samuel unpacks and he says, that day Saul lost the kingdom. See, Saul had an opportunity in that moment to pursue righteousness or to pursue ease. And he pursues ease. Because in his mind and in his thinking, this thing before the Lord is just something that needs to be done. It doesn't matter how it's done, it just needs to be done. Pragmatism over righteousness. It costs all the kingdom. Now, Samuel goes out and he is incredibly upset and dismayed that this man he has anointed, that this one God has called, has lost the kingdom. And God begins to tell Samuel, we need to find a new king. And so he sends him out. And who does he find? You'll remember if you read through the Old Testament, he finds David. So he goes out and he finds this man named Jesse and Jesse begins to line up his son and it's, 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 a, it's the best and the brightest and they're marching before him. Samuel sees the tall, he sees the handsome and he says, this has to be him. Verse 6 of chapter 16, it says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look upon his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord looks not on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And we begin to, begin to see that God wasn't primarily concerned with finding someone that everyone would look at and say, this is the guy. Look at how tall he is. This is the guy. Look how big his muscles are. This is the guy. Look how great he is. But that they would say, look at this guy, he is one who serves the Lord. And so he anoints David. The most insignificant of his son, the son who wasn't even there when they were called to be numbered, this is who receives the anointing of the Lord. And from that moment on, we begin to see that David, when he is pit in this decision of shall I pursue righteousness or shall I pursue ease, time and time again, he chooses to give himself the pursuit of righteousness. You'll remember, and, and many of the children in here will remember the tale of David and Goliath told in 1 Samuel chapter 17. But it's interesting when David goes out to fight Goliath and the Philistine moves forward towards him and David is this shepherd boy and he's out there, he's got the slingshot, he's got the stones, he's whirling them around. The Philistine steps up and in verse 41 of chapter 17 it says, he came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked at David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Even Goliath knew that he was a good-looking guy. He says, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now you have a veritable giant against a, a, a boy who is yet to be in war. And this giant calls out to him, and this giant by himself has kept the entire army of Israel quaking in their boots, no one wanting to go out to meet him, no one wanting to go out to challenge him, and here David is standing before him. 
And in verse 40, 45, David said to the Philistines, You come at me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come at you with the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or with spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. In this moment where David goes out in the just overwhelming display of bravado, not based upon his ability. Notice this. Whose battle is it? The battle belongs to the Lord. He says, you come at me, Goliath has said, with sticks, and David turns it right back on him and says, are you kidding me? You come at me with a sword? You come at me with a spear? You come at me with an armor bear? I come at you with the Lord. David had this opportunity in this moment to give way to fear. David had an opportunity in this moment to say, this is not the best idea I've ever had. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go hang out with my brothers. I'm going to send Saul and the entire army down here. But in this moment, he trusted not on pragmatism, nor did he trust on ease. He trusted in the Lord. David pursued righteousness over ease. Because he pursued righteousness over ease, things began to change for David and for Saul. The text tells us that the Lord sent a tormenting spirit to move in and to assail Saul. It just made him angry all the time. And the only thing that would comfort him in those moments is having David near. The fascinating thing about this is that the Lord comforted Saul by his spirit through the actions of David. So systematically, we begin to see that the Lord is honoring David because he set the Lord's will and the Lord's favor as foremost in his life. David refused in this phase of his life to be that person who would pursue ease over righteousness. And it almost cost him everything. You'll remember if you go through and you read through all of 1 Samuel that, that as Saul begins to grow in anger and in a recognition that the Lord's favor rested upon David, it no longer rested upon him, that, that over and over again, Saul heads out and he seeks to kill David. He seeks to put David to death, but in chapters 24 and 26, David is given at least two opportunities to kill Saul. One particular opportunity, David and his men are at the back of a cave, and Saul comes, and he's relieving himself at the front of the cave, and so David crawls over there, and he gets right up beside him, and he cuts just a little bit of his garment away. In chapter 24, he, he, he has cut just a little bit of it away, but look what it says in verse 5. It says, Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Speaking of Saul, the Lord's anointed to put my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. So David cries out to Saul. Saul leaves the mouth of the cave. He cries out to him and essentially says, Look what I could have done to you. I could have killed you, but I am a dog before my Lord. He bows down before Saul. 
David saw something in Saul of the, the Lord's anointing upon him. Essentially, he looked at him and said, you may seek my life, you may seek to put me to death, but you are the man God chose. Far be it from me to do anything to you. Once again, Saul pursues David in chapter 26, and David finds Saul asleep at night with a spear and a jug of water beside him. And so he creeps all the way over in there, and, and one of David's soldiers with him, Abishai, says, listen, let's just put this to the end right now. I'm going to take that spear, I'm going to stab it through him, we'll pin him to the ground, and this whole ordeal can be over. We can go home. Everybody loves you anyway. David recites the same verse. He said, this is the Lord's anointed. Far be it from me to strike down the Lord's anointed. Let's grab his spear, let's grab his jug of water, and let's go. And so David gets on the top of an opposing hill and he cries out. And Saul hears him. And essentially he has the same conversation with him again. This is what I could have done. This is what I was being asked to do. But I am not seeking your life. Given two opportunities to pursue radical ease. The temptation of putting to death the one who stood in between him and the throne. And in each of those opportunities, David saw fit to pursue righteousness over ease. David knew that it wasn't his place to strike down Saul. And so even at a great cost to himself, even at a great cost to those men who would follow him, even at a great cost to his family, he continually pursued righteousness over ease. The amazing thing is, when we get to the very end of 1 Samuel, Chapter 31 and verse 4, we read that Saul and Jonathan both die. David loses the man who was trying to put him to death, and he loses his best friend in a battle. And when the news travels to David, this would be the opportunity for him to say, whew, man, that was a rough few years. Like, that was pretty bad. I kept trying to be nice to the guy, but I'm getting a sense he doesn't like me. Like, every time that I'm out there, I'm just like, I could have killed you, but I didn't do that. And Saul's like, oh, I'm so sorry. It'll be okay. And, and I think we're going to be friends again. Then he tries to kill me again. So glad he's dead. But that's not how David responds. David hears news of the death of Jonathan and Saul, and he's overcome with grief to the point that he says, I'm going to write a song, and I think everyone in Judah needs to learn this, and everyone in Judah needs to to." Rehearse this, and everyone in Judah needs to sing this. Second Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 17. It says, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. And behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. And he said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. It's the man who sought to kill him. This is the man who time and time again could not be trusted. But as David looked at Saul, David saw the hand of God resting upon him. So he speaks of him in this way. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not under the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Verse 23 speaks of Jonathan. It says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, 
who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the field of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I want you to think about the depths that he goes to not just to display, not just to act out, not just to have the guise of righteousness, but how moved he is in his pursuit of righteousness. That he recognizes that everyone else needs to be led into this same experience, lest we look upon our past leaders and say, this guy was unworthy, these are all the various faults. David said, he was the Lord's anointed, he has fallen, let us be broken and cry out to God. David doesn't stop there. In chapter 9, David looks around and he wants to find someone from the line of Saul that he is yet to do good to. So they go out and they find Mephibosheth, a man with two lame feet, and David makes it an order that Mephibosheth is able to sit at the king's table all the days of his life. A man who brought nothing to the kingdom. A man who potentially enemies of David could rally behind and rally around and David says this is still someone who I could do good to David consistently pursues righteousness over ease he does it time and again the amazing thing in this is in just a few short pages we travel through so many years of history you see it was 15 years from the moment of David's anointing through the end of Saul's death till David became king over Judah. And then it was fully another seven years before Israel recognized the legitimacy of his claims. Twenty-two years. And he did not pursue ease over righteousness. For 22 years, he sought to faithfully discharge his duty. For 22 years, he sought to honor the Lord. For 22 years, he looked at ease and said, I want no part of it. He looked at righteousness, and he said, this is what I want to be known for. David had consistently been a man who pursued righteousness over ease. Until. Chapter 11 in 2 Samuel spells for us a tale of disaster, and it portrays for us a picture of what happens when a man or a people begin to exchange the pursuit of righteousness for the pursuit of ease. We might look at our lives in our retirement years and say, I've served the Lord faithfully, now I will serve myself. We might look at ourselves after we complete some significant objective. We graduate from high school, we graduate from college, we are finally married, and say, now I can relax, now I can take it easy, now I'm on the other side of this, and we move from pursuing righteousness to pursuing ease. Chapter 11 opens up and it says, In the springtime of the year when kings go out to battle. Notice that. It says, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now on the level we look at this and say, Surely he deserved a little rest. Surely he, he didn't have to go out and fight every battle. And certainly he didn't. But the, the, the narrator gives us this insight to give us the impression that this was a time for kings to go out. And what did David do? He did something simple. He did something on the face of it, in the beginning of it, relatively innocent. 
pursued a course of ease. He pursued a course of relaxation. He might have been tired. And certainly we can read his accounts previously and know that a rest for a man such as this is well-deserved. But as David remains at Jerusalem, verse 2 said, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So David's up there, he looks, and he sees Bathsheba. He looks again, he recognizes how attractive she is, and so he turns to one of his servants, and he says, Who is this? And one of the servants says, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David knows who she is. David knows her husband. He recognizes that she's married. And he says, Go get her anyway. So the messenger brings her to David. David, the text tells us, lays with her. And then she returned to her house. And verse 5 says, the woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. A whole host of things has transpired. David, using the powers of his position, brought a married woman into his house. He laid with her. She became pregnant. She lets him know that his sin will not go undiscovered. Her husband's fighting in battle. David has gotten her pregnant. And so David, in his mind, thinks, well, this just ain't going to work i got to do something about this. we got to get Uriah back here so that there can at least be some confusion as to who the legitimate father of this child is. And so he has Uriah called, recalled from battle and brought to his house. And as David is sitting there, he begins to just enter into casual conversation with Uriah. Verse 7 says, When Uriah came to David, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. He's sitting with the king of Israel, and David's like, so like, tell me, like, is it going? Is it rough out there? Are, are they still serving gruel? I never liked gruel. What's it like camping? Is it, has it been warm? Is the battle going well? Like, are you okay, big guy? So David's trying to, to bring him into his confidence, and then in the middle of these things, David says, listen, you just need to go back to your house. You need to go wash your feet. In essence, you need to go be with your wife. So Uriah went out from the king's house and he followed, and it followed with him a present from the king. David is seeking to entice Uriah into unrighteousness. Look at Uriah's response first time. It says, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. David's pursuit of ease had led him into a path of unrighteousness and he delighted. He desired, he desperately needed Uriah to follow him in that same pursuit. This is why he recalled him from battle. This is why he sought to have him go to his wife's house. But Uriah chose not to pursue ease, not to pursue this thing that was laid before him, but instead to pursue righteousness, and he refused to go down there. So David asked him, he said, why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah gives him a righteous response. Verse 11, he says, The ark of Israel and Judah dwells in booths, my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, to drink, and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David laid it up there for him. He gave him instruction. He gave him opportunity. But Uriah continually pursues righteousness. 
So David thinks, okay, I'm going to give this one more shot. So he brings Uriah back in. He says, stay another couple of days. He brings him back in. He says, let's do some drinking. Let me, maybe if I just get this guy intoxicated enough, I can lead him to make some bad decisions, which frequently happens when you're intoxicated. So he brings him back. He plies him with liquor. And in the midst of these things, David's thinking, this is going to work, this is going to work, this is going to work. David invites him back, verse 13. They ate and they drank, and he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even in an impaired state, Uriah refused to pursue ease and gave himself to the pursuit of righteousness. So David's faced with this final consequence. Listen, you can't be here. You can't live anymore. You can't exist anymore. And his lust gave way to rage. So he sends Uriah back with a note that essentially says this, in the midst of battle, pull back from Uriah. And the armies follow David's orders, and Uriah dies. I want you to see this. Uriah is not often prominently displayed in the telling of this, but what we see in Uriah is a passionate pursuit of righteousness. I refuse to engage in this. I refuse to do this. And it cost him his life. David's refusal to pursue righteousness, we read in chapter 12, introduces the sword to his life, introduces rage to his family. Even though he will not lose the kingdom and the covenant that God made for him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's family line becomes horrific. Within two generations, the nation is split over David's grandson in a decision that he would make. The decision to pursue righteousness over ease is not something citizens of the kingdom get to debate. It is something our Lord calls us to and something we must give ourselves to. Jesus carries this same lesson to us and to the disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Speaking of this of this predicament, this is essentially what Jesus says. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus speaking to the disciples and engaging them in the midst of these things said to them, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now Jesus had, had, had spoken to the disciples in John chapter 15 and recorded in verse 18 and said, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you as well. A servant is not above their master. And so in essence, we read in this and we come to understand in this that to be a follower of Jesus is to have an expectation of suffering, is to have an expectation of persecution. That the absence of persecution in our lives is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing, but what it could be is a sign of no outward demonstration from us of Jesus, and that's why everybody's leaving us alone. We're okay, we're kind of this vanilla, normal, natural easygoing person. We don't get people too riled up. We don't upset very many people. No one really knows what we think, and that's why we're left alone. But what does Jesus say? He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. 
It could be that some of us are persecuted, not for righteousness' sake, but just because we're not a very wonderful person. It could be that some of us are persecuted not for righteousness' sake, but because you're a difficult person to be around. It could be that you're not persecuted for righteousness' sake, you're just persecuted or you're experiencing discomfort, you're experiencing suffering because you consistently make bad decisions. There is no blessing in that. There's no blessing in going out and making bad decisions and God's like, oh my goodness, Matt's such a hapless nitwit, I guess I might as well just bless him. The blessing as recorded in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10 is reserved to those for those who suffer for righteousness' sake. And then further is given this word, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we begin to recognize that when we live in such a way as that this place, this country, this city is our forever home, the chances of us receiving a blessing as described by our Lord are relatively new. And if you live in such a way as to make this place your forever home, if you live as a Christian in such a way that gives a declaration that this place is all there is waiting for me, and so I'd better make it as good as possible, then you have missed it. Then you have mistaken the command of the Lord. Then you have mistaken God's heart. Christian, God has created you and he has designed you to be homesick for a land you've never been to. And your citizenship is not primarily established here. Your citizenship is established in heaven. This is why it is good for the Christian to be persecuted. This is why it is good for us to give our hearts and to live our lives as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So look at the powerful thing Jesus does does here. Repeatedly throughout the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. But now what he does here in verse 11, he says, blessed are you. So he moves from the abstraction of the people around you being blessed, and he turns directly into the reality of their experience. He says, blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed are you when others persecute you. Blessed are you when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Christian, you are blessed when you stand and display Jesus and you suffer for it. You are blessed when you stand and you declare and you live out all the realities and the vitality of your faith. You are blessed when you do these things and you suffer for it. We've created this false paradigm where we are living to live a life uninterrupted, where we're seeking to live a life in peace, we are seeking to live a life in harmony. What Jesus says repeatedly is if you want to follow me, you're going to suffer. If you want to follow me, it's going to be difficult. If we follow Jesus well, we will continually put ourselves running contrary to the deeds of darkness. When we show Jesus, when we display the light of the gospel through the power of Jesus, and we recognize that in John chapter 1 and verse 5 that the light shines into darkness, that it exposes the deeds of darkness. So when we are pursuing righteousness, displaying Jesus, and we come across people who are engaged in sin, both in the church and outside the church, the light of Jesus shines through us into that darkness, and it exposes that sinfulness, and it leads us to experience persecution and difficulty. But will we pursue that? I think that many of the reasons that we in the West do not experience the over-persecution of the church is because we're so much more satisfied with ease than righteousness. 
so much more satisfied with the ease of casual church attendance. I'm so much more satisfied with the ease of the small group of intimate friends who know me, who I can suggest that they're doing things that they maybe shouldn't do. We, pre we prefer the ease of a small faith that is unimpactful. We prefer the ease of an uninterrupted life. We recognize that the call to righteousness is a call to die. The call to righteousness is a call to suffer. Jesus said, blessed are you and others revile you. When's the last time you were reviled for righteousness? Sake? Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted. When's the last time someone persecuted you for righteousness? Sake? Jesus said, blessed are you when people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When is the last time your demonstration of faith in Jesus was so acute that you suffered for it, that someone spoke out against you on the basis of it? My suspicion is that many of us have suffered being reviled, that many of us have experienced what we refer to as persecution, that many of us have things said about us falsely, but just on the basis is that we were not loving in our address. And that's the primary thing that people are picking up on. Not that the things we said about Jesus were true, not that the way we lived was offensive to them, but that the way we spoke to them was hateful. Repeatedly, we are those who pursue ease over righteousness. Think of a conversation of friends, of family, of casual coworkers. You're around, and they're discussing the merits of a particular worldview that you recognize comes into conflict with Christianity. Suppose, for example, that they're discussing the benefits of the LGBTQ plus community and how it's really loving and how it's just this most amazing thing and that Christians are small-minded people who can't mind their own business and they're not hurting anybody and they just need to be left alone and they just need to be kind of on their own. And then they turn to the room and they say, don't you all agree? Well, you're stuck like Chuck in that moment. You're wishing you to grab water somewhere else. You're wishing you to have lunch with a different group of people. And so you try this approach. You look down in a way and you don't say a word. But maybe this time the ringleader in the room is making eye contact with people. They're like, you're making eye contact, you're with me. You're making eye contact, you're with me. You're, not, you're looking down in a way. And they call you by name and say, don't you, don't you think so, Matt? Well, in that moment, you're at a crossroads. Will you pursue ease and just say, that's right, and move on? Will you try and change the conversation? They're like, whoa, this is a spicy burrito. And they're like, we're at Panda. What are you eating? You're like, ha, I make all kinds of weird things when I'm nervous. Woo, what a spicy chimichanga. Dang it, still the wrong food. Because it's awkward, because it's difficult in that moment to give a righteous response. Maybe you love the people you're around and you don't want to offend them. Maybe you don't know the people around you very well and you don't want to offend them or to give them a caricature of a small-minded worldview. But maybe in reality, what you prefer is your reputation. Maybe in reality, what you prefer is to be thought of well by people. Maybe in reality, you recognize you don't actually believe the Lord. And at the cost of pursuing righteousness over ease, you're going to pursue ease every time. Christians are those who pursue righteousness over ease.
Maybe it's not a, a group of people who, who disagree with you and they're advancing a worldview that's contrary to your own. Maybe instead what you find yourself in is in a situation with a group of Christian brothers or sisters and they begin to do things and say things that you know to be sinful. I'm not talking a matter of liberty. I'm not talking a matter of conscience. I'm talking you know out and out the things they're saying, the things they're engaged with are sinful. The way they speak about their spouses, maybe the things they do with people who aren't their spouses. And they've invited you to this particular gathering. It's a place you've wanted to go for a long time. It's a hunting trip you wanted to take. It's a trip. It's a friend group that you wanted to be in. And in that place, they begin to talk about it. And the assumption is, because nobody's saying anything, that everyone agrees. And in that moment, your faith is on the line, and you have a choice, and you have a determination. Will I pursue ease and say nothing, or will I pursue righteousness and bring my brothers or sisters back from the dead? James chapter 5 repeatedly tells us that we have some sense and responsibility in being responsible for our brother and sister and for the representation of the faith. We must be those who in that setting and in that place gently call them and rebuke them and say, hey, listen, man, this is completely unrighteous. This isn't a good reflection of who we say, at least, we believe God to be. This isn't a good representation of who he actually is as those who are meant to embody him, his church. Man, we've got to abandon this. We are Christian brothers. We are Christian sisters gathered around, and there is nothing different and distinct about our gathering than there is when I get around lost people. But my sense and my suspicion is that creates awkwardness. And we want to continue to be invited to those gatherings. We want to continue to be around the guys and, and we want to continue to go hang out with our friends. Christians are not those who pursue ease of a righteousness. Christians are those who say to discomfort, who say to reviling, who say to awkwardness, I will pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. Some of us, you're so far ahead of the class that you have just beaten out both of these things and so you only actually hang out with legitimate Christians who are nothing but holy. Like somehow you found a time machine, you brought some Puritans back and you're like, what's up, let's kick it. And they're like, that's sinful, don't talk like that. And you're like, yeah, thank you for that rebuke, Brother Matthias. And so for you, you don't have to worry about ease or righteousness because you have created this small group of people that these are the only group of people that you ever spend time with. I hold them accountable, they hold me accountable. That must be easy because none of you live. And in that moment, you've just pursued ease in another name. You've pursued a baptized kind of ease by surrounding yourself with people and removing any ability to engage. Perhaps your work environment looks like that. Perhaps your family life looks like that. Perhaps your friend group looks like that. You've divorced and taken away your ability to be impactful and effective salt and light in this community in all the various places God could take you. He could move you to the farthest, reach of the, uh, farthest reaches of the world, and it would not change because of your carefully constructed life. Christians are those who radically embrace difficulty in an opportunity to display God's righteousness in order to be impactful. 
Christians are those who, according to verse 12, rejoice and are glad when they are persecuted. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The author of Hebrews, in describing the men and women who went before us, the men and women who were persecuted before us, this is what it says about them. It says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even in chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves of the earth. We have got to be those who give our hearts and submit our lives as citizens of his kingdom to being those who pursue righteousness over evil. We do it in an election year. We do it at the ballot box. We do it in conversations with people we disagree with. We do it in conversations with people we agree with. Christians, there is not an opportunity for you to divorce your faith from anything you're engaged in. So every various application where you are walking, living, being, breathing, existing, staying alive is an opportunity to pursue righteousness over evil. Let me pray for you. Father God, I pray that you would help us to recognize the reality of what is ease and what is righteousness. God, in that, I pray that we would submit ourselves to you, that we would humbly pray before you and confess different times where we're faced with decisions. God, that you would lead us in paths of righteousness in every facet of our life. Father, we pray for those who are in this hearing or in this room who may not know you. God, that they may not hear in this that they are to be those who live righteously. But God, that you would help them to understand that you would awaken them to the reality that there is only one who is righteous, and that's your son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfectly sinless life, who died in their place so that they might know you. And the righteous life that he lived, he calls them to receive. Your son Jesus, who died and who rose again, bids them to come and to receive forgiveness for their unrighteousness. Forgiveness for their pursuit of ease. Forgiveness of their indifference. God, would you change our hearts as we submit our lives to you in all things. Lead us in paths of righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.